0: Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, where we put the spotlight on changemakers and experts in the field of safeguarding. Throughout the series, we'll have conversations with those who can offer insights that can help us all to better understand safeguarding and improve our practices. This podcast is produced by the Safeguarding Hub Eastern Europe. Our hub provides practical, and accessible safeguarding resources that aim to reduce the harm to refugees and displaced people. I'm your host, Annie Vosch, and I'm the Regional Communications Manager for the Safeguarding Hub Eastern Europe, and thank you for listening to today's episode, Why Skipping Safeguarding in Emergencies Isn't an Option. This episode, I will be joined by Alice Gentile to explore the impact of safeguarding on her personal life, the importance of being aware of safeguarding in emergency situations, and the challenges of balancing a survivor centered approach with the need to reach conclusions in investigations. Our guest is Head of Global Ethics and Compliance Office at Terre des Hommes Foundation in Lausanne. She worked at different NGOs worldwide to protect children. Hi Alice and welcome to Safeguarding Hub Eastern Europe's podcast. Since 2019, you are working in the child protection and need safeguarding. And why did you choose this particular area?
1: Thank you, Anil. it's very nice to be here with you. Why did I choose? end up working in safeguarding i think i think actually maybe safeguarding chosen me if i can see it that way you know i've always been passionate about children's rights and this came for from a very early age i was a child and i was already very sensitive to to, uh, the topic of children's rights and what was happening in the world and the situation of children facing conflict and wars and, and uh, displacement etc. So I knew I knew there was there was the path for me in, uh, in this sector in the child protection sector and I knew it very early. So I've always aimed at working with organizations that had a focus on children on protecting and promoting their rights and therefore worked, with child protection agencies. But I have a quite generalistic profile to start with. Um, I'm also a journalist, a a trained journalist at university and, and then focused on international cooperation and humanitarian aid. And I did quite some program management jobs for a while, but always with that child protective lens. And then I ended up studying child protection Uh, Child Protection in Emergencies, therefore specifically focused on humanitarian action and and managing child protection cases. And this is how I ended up working on topics related to safeguarding, you know, implementing on supporting organizations, implementing their safeguarding policies and the accountability and reporting mechanisms that are linked to those policies. And then little by little, step by step, getting to work fully on safeguarding. So it wasn't a planned career, it was a step-by-step process and now that um, I'm here, you know after several years, I know this is where I was meant to be.
0: Oh, that's it's really great to hear. I know that you have two young children and how does uh, this affect your daily work in safeguarding?
1: You, you think that I'm turning your questions around? But here again, it's actually my job, you know, and the focus of my job that has an influence on how I am a mother and how I manage or perceive risks towards my children. So, of course, having children, I think, makes me all the more sensitive and, you know, affected by issues that can arise and involve children, specifically children, child safeguarding issues. That, can, that, that are very sensitive, very difficult to manage, very difficult to, to approach. But working in the field of safeguarding, it's also given me a lot of tools to understand what are the actual risks that we face out there, because safeguarding and child safeguarding, they're not only issues that our sector is facing, the humanitarian sector. You will find those challenges and those risks everywhere, in every sector, in every aspect of life, education, health, private organization, private sector, corporate, everywhere, basically. And it's given me tools to understand when there's a red flag, when there's a lack of preventative, preventative measures, where I feel that I would expect more in terms of protecting my children for any, from any potential harm, for example, in the school or with the babysitter, or with an activity center. So I always look at all these details and I expect, I have expectations, high expectations from different levels in terms of what I want to see, in terms of preventative measures and management measures with regards to any type of harm that can happen. Um, So it's the other way around. But of course, being a mother, I think increases your sensitivity. And there's one point of attention is you always have to make sure that you leave at work, the issues that you have at work. So you need to be very self-centered and self-aware, you know, of your limits. And whenever you feel there's something you're handling that can be an issue at home, you know, that can make it difficult in the relationship that you have with your children, you need to make sure that you have possibilities, various possibilities to get it out, to have help you need help, I think it's very good and very healthy to understand your limits and get the support you need, even on a regular basis. So I think when you work in that field, it's a good practice anyhow to be supervised by a professional and to find those strategies to handle difficult situations and keep them in the professional sphere so that they do not affect your private life too much.
0: Mm -hmm. I know that a lot of help required the Ukrainian refugees as well. So in your experience, what kind of safeguarding issues can arise in a humanitarian emergency like we witnessed in Ukraine?
1: Yeah, humanitarian actions are situations where what we call safeguarding risks are all the more increased, right? So they're very specific situations where something happens And several elements will make it a challenge because, first of all, it's linked to the organizational context. So when you have an emergency, when you need to respond to a humanitarian crisis, you need to deploy assistance very quickly. So it means that you're going to be willing to do things very quickly and needing to do things very quickly. But also you're going to bring in a lot of resources that are lacking at the moment, are not available at the moment because of the situation of crisis, but also there will be an increase in uh, the number of humanitarian workers, and some of these workers will come from the outside. Some will be maybe less equipped. Uh, You may involve volunteers, for example, and we've seen this a lot in response to the Ukraine crisis, but also there are some uh, elements linked to the context and the fact that the persons who uh, have undergone a crisis or going through a crisis are in a situation where they may have lost everything and access to basic services and and emergency services and protection networks that may have been existent in in a situation of non-crisis or state mechanisms may be not working, they may not be in place. And and then you also have other aspects that are linked to partnerships or the fact that organizations may be working with partners to implement their projects. And that can generate a whole other amount of risks because the control measures in place in the case of new partnerships or in the case of remote management can also add on an element of risk. And the fact that you'd be less likely to monitor the risk in an adapted way. So in humanitarian crisis, anyhow, it's very important to be very much aware of those risks, be very much aware that doing things quickly doesn't mean that you need to skip the safeguarding step. It's very important to do needs analysis. It's very important to understand the context and to map risks, to understand if you can go ahead with the way you plan the activities and projects, if not how you need to review them, what resources you need to to avoid the risk and to handle the risk if it were to happen and that you do not miss on taking the time of training the persons who come in because they will come from different contexts, they will have different levels of experience, Mm -hmm. but they need to be very well aware of the standards that is expected from the organization, what you can do, what you cannot do, what is the point of attention what you should do if something goes wrong, and what are the resources in place to report it, to handle it, etc. Every crisis will see those challenges because they're very much linked to the organizations and to the specific context of humanitarian aid.
0: Can you share with us about one or two safeguarding cases from your experience, which were difficult to resolve, of course, without sharing the specifics?
1: found it quite challenging to balance the survivor centered approach with reaching conclusions and being able to take measures following up a case and which is totally fine i mean i'm not questioning the uh, the survivor centered principle at all but it may sometimes bring some frustrations i'm going to remain very general but let's say you have a case and you've conducted an investigation and you're reaching the final stages where you've had interviews with survivors of a form of abuse, let's say uh, sexual harassment. You have evidence that is provided aside from the testimonies, from the survivors, from witnesses, and then arrives the point where you have to interview the subject of concern with the person with uh, Was the subject of a complaint or a case of misconduct, for example. And a survivor-centered principle means that you will involve the survivor in all the steps of the investigation, among others, and that they will have the power to decide, well, firstly, if they want to go ahead with the investigation, but also with whom you will be sharing the information. And of course, if there's any wish of anonymity, you need to respect those. And I've had cases where the fears of retaliation that the survivors had that were legitimate and that we could not as an organization prevent, which is very difficult to accept as well, uh, led us to the fact that we were not in a position at the end of the process to present the evidence that we had to the subject of concern for the subject of concern to have that opportunity that is part of due process to explain themselves and give their version of the facts. And if you don't follow due process, it's very complicated to go and then bring the conclusions to management for action. So we had one case in particular, and it was very complicated, and it it was uh, lagging behind, and it took several months for us to actually move ahead with this because we were blocked. And at the same time, I was refusing to close the case because I knew this was true, but I wanted to, to be able you know, to, to take measures following it. So we were lucky because we eventually managed to get from the phone company service a log from the messages and the calls that were done from the subject of concerns phone, which was a professional phone. So we were lucky with that as well. And be able to actually present evidence to the subject of concern that would not enable the person to identify the survivors and be able to perform potentially retaliation. But I have to say it's quite a challenge and I've been really thinking and discussing this a lot with colleagues.
0: You mentioned that investigations are particularly challenging. Should these investigations be carried out by internal or external consultants? What is your opinion about this?
1: I think it depends on the setup you have within an organization. If you need to be able to guarantee basic principles whenever you conduct investigation so if you're able to guarantee this with an internal process and you have you know the resources internally then that's fine otherwise i think it's best to recourse to external uh, investigators and those basic principles there are you able to maintain confidentiality Are you able to ensure this will be an independent and impartial process so that the investigators will not be biased because they may know the person even from afar or that they may have an idea of that person or that they may have interests for a project or an office not challenged by a case so you need to take those elements into account do you have persons who are duly trained and experienced in conducting investigations who know the local applicable context legally but also the culture who speak the right languages (laughs) can you guarantee this will be realized in a timely manner as well so all of these things are basic things that you need to consider whenever you decide the process is going to be internal or external. Some organizations have an actual office that is dedicated fully and only to investigations. So they have the resources, they have the capacity technically as well. They can guarantee confidentiality and partiality. It will be a speedy process because they're not doing another job at the same time. They may have relays in the countries of operation, So this is working, but if you don't have this, and you expect people who already have another job may know the persons may have a particular interest or even you know some form of loyalty towards the organization it can get very complicated yes,
0: and then yeah. it's best
1: to externalize
0: thank you Alice it's really interesting to see all these challenges to conclude our podcast What are your tips for civil society organizations to safeguard Ukrainian refugees in particular?
1: Will I be impartial saying that my main tip will be go on the Safeguarding uh, Hub Eastern Europe website because you have so many resources there that are so helpful. I was saying that one of the challenges is we're lacking resources in the world of safeguarding. So we have to not reinvent the wheel. The safeguarding hub is one example. You have everything there. You can contextualize it to your own organization. So you don't have to lose time rebuilding what already exists. That's been developed by very, very good technical experts. So that's my main tip, but then, and that will help with the issue of resources and having dedicated persons and having the capacity to follow on that. And you can get also expert advice from the hub, which is a very interesting thing, I would say. Another tip is know whom you're working with internally and externally. I mean, if you're targeting specific activities and specific profiles of persons with vulnerabilities understand their situation understand their needs understand pre-existing risks and what additional risks the intervention and your teams and your programs may bring in and how you can tackle these so even when doing risk assessments taking the time for trainings onboarding etc may seem like it's a lot of things in addition to everything else we have to do these are basic things that you cannot skip you cannot skip because otherwise the risk will be too much and again most of these things can be jointly you can collaborate with other organizations you can get support this is a very important uh, topic and there is support out there so don't miss out on that mm-hmm.
0: I'm Annika Vosch and you've been listening to Spotlight On produced with the support of Safeguarding Hub Eastern Europe. We had help from Judith Németh Almási and Sarah Martin. Thanks to all of you for listening and thank you Alice Gentile for joining me today on this episode of Spotlight On. I hope you enjoyed learning about her practical experience in safeguarding. If you want to learn more, please visit our website, easterneurope.safeguardingsupporthub.org. If you have any comments on this episode, or want to share your thoughts for the focus of future episodes, contact us via social media on Facebook or LinkedIn, or email us on easterneurope at Thanks for joining. See you on our next episode.